Ready to start. For those of you who do not know it, Robbie is out of town. He's in Israel, along with a tour group, so keep them in your prayers. He has pre-recorded some lessons on the book of Jude, and this will be lesson 10 that we present tonight. So without further ado, let's get started. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the Word, ready to focus on what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us as we study God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can be here together to study your word, to fellowship around the eternal truth of your word. We're reminded that it is in the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ that he prayed that we would be sanctified by means of your truth and that it is through your word that you set us apart and that is done in terms of our thinking and in terms of understanding and believing, applying uh, your word in our lives and to our thinking and to our actions. Father, as we continue our study and understanding your word and the process by which you gave us your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we might think more clearly about your word, and that we may have a greater appreciation for what we have in these 66 books of the Bible. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our study of Jude, there is an emphasis in Jude 3 that we are to... Uh, we are to contend earnestly, vigorously for the faith that is the body of doctrine that was revealed by God to man that is contained within the scriptures. And we believe the scriptures are made up of two major portions, the what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. The Hebrew scriptures are comprised of 39 books and the New Testament It's comprised of 27 books, and we believe these books were given by God through man, that they have a divine origin that has a human author, that God uh, worked in and through the writings of the individual uh, writers of Scripture uh, to uh, preserve uh, the Scriptures, uh, to to, uh, uh, inspire them, 
uh, in the writing of the scriptures and to oversee it so that what they wrote was without error. And then God preserved it down through the ages. We do not believe that it, it, it was a, necessarily a dictation. Now, some portions of the Scripture clearly were given in some manner such as that. For example, portions of the Mosaic Law, portions of the uh, uh, the Torah, and Exodus, Leviticus, were part of the tablets that, God, that were written with the finger of God. But other portions were written by the individual human authors, and that God oversaw that, that particular uh, process. Uh, we believe that this did not necessarily mean that uh, Scripture was was perfect in some senses, that there is a view of the inspiration of Scripture held within certain orthodox uh, elements of Judaism, that uh, rabbinic Judaism, that led to the view that uh, if Scripture is perfect, then that means that God doesn't repeat himself. And, of course, that that's a false interpretation or definition of what it means to be uh, to be perfect and in doing that they have that led to uh, uh, various misinterpretations and even mistranslations of Old Testament text because there was an assumption that God would not repeat himself so maybe this verse uh, doesn't mean it's not that particular word or this particular word because that's said over here so there's not a repetition and uh, that's that that's a false standard. So sometimes inerrancy or infallibility or inspiration are misunderstood because of a false concept of of inspiration, where it's made to mean something that that it isn't. So these definitions that we have have been worked through by by scholars uh, who have thought deeply, profoundly about. Uh, many of the um, uh, issues, questions uh, that have come up about the text and some of the criticisms that have arisen, especially from liberalism arising out of uh, 17th century, 18th century enlightenment, which led to 19th century uh, rationalism and uh, uh, German liberalism or Protestant, what became known as Protestant liberalism. So last time I pointed out that if we're going to contend for the faith, and that the faith refers to a specific body of doctrine, there has to be an authority for that, and that authority is the Scripture. This is a foundational doctrine, and we see a great example in Jude 3 of how this process of inspiration took place. As Jude had originally intended to write one thing, but then as God the Holy Spirit oversaw or overrode him to some degree or pressured him, gave him a sense of significance and importance to go in another direction. He could not do otherwise than to write to these uh, believers to challenge them to contend earnestly for the faith rather than talking about, uh, as he'd originally intended, their common salvation. So last time we began to look at the doctrine of inspiration, and I gave you a definition, a multi-part definition, and we spent most of the time just going through each of these components. Uh, we speak of uh, inspiration as something unique in Scripture. It's not like the inspiration of, of uh, Shakespeare or the inspiration of uh, Leonardo da Vinci or the inspiration of, of uh, some uh, architect 
but it has to do with with God breathing, that spiration idea in the English word, God breathing through the human writers of Scripture. So it's an exhale from God, inhaled by the writers of Scripture, and then exhaled through their writing itself. The process, as we've seen, is overseen by God the Holy Spirit. So we have a theological definition here, but it is uh, supported by uh, key passages of Scripture, and so it is derived from the text. One of the problems we often run into in theology, in fact, I was talking to a pastor uh, who uh, recently who's teaching a class at a seminary, and he was given a set of notes, and he, he was asking me uh, some questions about it because he did not agree with, with the position that was stated in the notes by the, the uh, professor, and he was right to do so. But he went through about eight points before there was ever mention of a scripture. And it's very, it's very common in theology at times to cut it loose from the exegesis of the text, and so you end up basically presenting a rational philosophy of, of uh, theology rather than an exegetically derived theology. So we always want to make sure that whatever we're saying can be traced back to a specific statement in the Scripture, that we're pulling it out of the Scripture and not reading it into the Scripture, which is also known as eisegesis as opposed to exegesis, pulling something out of the Scripture. So our definition was that we believe that the Scripture in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic as well, uh, we would include that because there's a few verses in Ezra that are in Aramaic. There's a verse or two scattered here or there in Ezekiel, a couple of other places in Aramaic, and then there's several chapters in Daniel in Aramaic. But the, uh, we believe the Scripture in the original languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, both Old and New Testaments, to be the uh, plenary, verbally inspired Word of God. And that um, uh, uh, in terms of the definition here, that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, their individuality, their literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Uh, let's just take a little case study of this. Uh, this th- this is the claim that the Bible has for itself. Now, we want to avoid going to what I would call, call a hyper-literalist extreme in understanding the Scripture. What I mean by hyper-literalist is a view where you set up virtually an artificial standard, like I just mentioned, where you assume, well, the Bible is perfect, so that means God's not going to uh, uh, repeat himself. Well, where does that idea that God... Perfection means God doesn't repeat himself. There are many places in the Scripture where God repeats and repeats because that's a key element in, in instruction. So you can, you can impose a false standard into your definition, which then leads to a, a erroneous inter- interpretation and understanding of the Scripture. What happened in the Enlightenment period in the 1700s and 1800s 
is a, 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 the rise of what became known as historical criticism or sometimes biblical criticism. Now, this was a, there were a couple of positive elements maybe in this movement, but mostly it was bad because by criticism they really meant that we're not going to take the word of God to be what it claims it is. We're going to assume it's just a purely human work that's just like any other work. Now, see, there's something part of that that's true. The Bible should be interpreted as literature because it's written by human beings, ultimately God working through them using normal literary styles. Um, So it should be translated as, as any other kind of literature. And that stands in contrast to something that had affected both rabbinic interpretation as well as early Christian interpretation. And that occurred in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries A.D. with the influence of Greek philosophy upon this whole idea of interpretation so that a text that was a divine text uh, by definition wouldn't be treated like any other human literature. Well, that's see, there's nothing in the Bible that, that says that. That is an artificially developed uh, principle that was then in, incorporated, uh, which shaped their interpretation of Scripture. And so they saw that, that God is going to be different, and uh, God is going to speak not like men speak, but he's going to speak cryptically. And so you look not for the literal meaning of the text, but you look beneath the text. You have to probe deeply into the text. You have to find uh, layers of meaning to get to the real spiritual meaning, which may not have anything to do with this surface literal meaning based on the historical grammatical interpretation. This came into Christianity uh, through men like Origen, later Augustine, and it was known as allegory. Well, the same, the same intellectual influences uh, occurred in Judaism and affected early rabbinic thought so that they viewed uh, their, their approach to, to the Bible was that God gave it. It was all, all, almost all dictation and that it's cryptic. So we have to look for some secondary meaning. So in, in, and since that really doesn't work, it, it does produce a flawed theology you have an overreaction that comes from the Enlightenment that now we're going to treat it like it's human literature, but they also brought in uh, artificial ideas that weren't part of that, and so they they assumed that there would be contradictions because they assumed, well, you get 40 people in a room, uh, 40 scholars in a room, they're going to disagree with each other. So why should we expect that the 40 writers of, of Scripture would agree with each other. And so they assume that there's going to be disagreements, and that's what they bring to the text. They're, they're not going to let the text itself speak for itself. And one classic example of this occurs in Genesis chapter 1, and it has to do with creation. And creation, I think, is one of those foundational doctrines to the faith, and it is uh, uh, foundational to understanding what is going on both in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And the way this this worked as a result of bi- the application of these artificial principles of biblical criticism, also known as higher criticism, is that they saw Genesis 2 as having two different accounts of creation. The first account uses the name Elohim because that is the name that is used throughout Genesis chapter 1 down through uh, the first part of Genesis 2 through 4. And then in the second part of two four we have um, we have the statement 
Uh, this is uh, the this history of the heavens and the earth. They would end it there, our heaven, heavens and the earth when they were created, and then they would split the verse right there and the sentence right there, and then they would say, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And at that point, they say, oh, see, now we have a new name for God. It's Lord. So we, we probably have a different author here. And so they developed this theory of multiple authors, uh, multiple redactors, they'll call them multiple authors, uh, of the scripture and then one editor who brought this together sometime later. And so we had one creation account in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4a and another creation account in 2, 4b. Rather than looking at this and saying, well, uh, Genesis, uh, the sixth day in the first chapter is merely presenting a summary of the creation of the human race that God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness, um, uh, and uh, God, <clears throat> God created man, verse 27, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. See, that's a summary statement. But they'll say, see, it didn't work that way in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, first the man's created, and then later the woman is created. So you have a different different account. Well, that's not really a contradiction. If you understand Genesis 1, 26 and 27 uh, to be talking about uh, just a summary of what happened during the day without giving a uh, precise order, uh, then Genesis 2 gives us the specifics. And that fits Hebrew literature. In fact, one of the um, great Jewish scholars of the 20th century was a man by the name of Umberto Casudo who wrote a very thin volume called The Documentary Hypothesis that just ripped uh, all liberal thought as it sought to sort of chop up authorship in these passages. But I just use that as an example to show you how the by creating artificial definitions both on the traditional uh, hyper-literalist side and then on the liberal side, bringing in uh, or importing artificial ideas and definitions uh, to uh, to the text or to, to what inerrancy is, what inspiration is, Without exploring it and developing it inductively from the text, it, it led to f- false views of inspiration, which led to bad theology in some places, which led to a reaction in the other direction. So we have to be careful to base what we're saying on the text. And, uh, and you look at the examples that are given, such as Jude 3, on how the, the Holy Spirit works in and through the writers without uh, completely taking over their personality or without uh, letting them just run free and incorporate error uh, or mistakes within what they are writing. And this would, and, and I think another problem people have is this doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have perfect, perfect grammar or a perfect uh, understanding of Greek, because for many of the writers of the New Testament, such as Peter, Peter was a, an untrained fisherman uh, for whom Greek was not an, uh, his first language, and so that is clearly seen in how he writes in his in his uh, in his style. There are some he, he writes uh, with a more difficult. Uh, Greek structure indicating someone who did not have that as their original language. At least that's true for First Peter. Okay, so we have this uh, definition. We looked at our key passages, Second Timothy three fifteen through seventeen, specifically verse sixteen, that all Scripture is and it should be translated breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate. And the idea there is is not just uh, just sort of barely prepared. It is thoroughly prepared. He is. It's sufficient that the man of God may be sufficiently prepared, equipped for every good work. So it is. Nothing more is needed than the word. This idea of sufficiency is embedded in that, as we'll see uh, as we develop this a little further. Second uh, Peter one twenty twenty one is another passage that we uh, that we looked at the last time, focusing on the fact that that scripture did, was not generated by the writers of scripture. This is not their claim, but that it had its ultimate origin in God, and it is through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in and through the writers of Scripture that they that they wrote, so that it's not their opinion. This is why you have 40 writers of Scripture who do not disagree with one another, is because ultimately there's an invisible mind, an invisible hand behind them writing uh, through them so that he it all presents one unified viewpoint. But we have to start with that assumption, but it's an assumption that we get from the claim of Scripture itself. We have to let the Bible speak for itself. Now, another uh, phrase that's used to describe inspiration, this is a second point. The first point all had to do with our definition. The second point has to do with understanding a little additional terminology, and this is the terminology of verbal plenary inspiration, verbal plenary inspiration. And we believe that the uh, scripture in the original languages of Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic uh, was uh, inspired verbally and in a plenary manner. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, first of all, the word uh, verbal means that the specific words of scripture are, uh, are inspired doesn't mean dictated, but it means that there is a, a sovereign oversight from God the Holy Spirit so that uh, a writer was, uh, uh, in a sense, controlled or like a governor on an engine uh, so that certain words were chosen because other words or synonyms conveyed meanings that weren't quite what the Holy Spirit wanted to uh, communicate, and so that this extends down to even the, ex- the the level of grammar, a perfect tense indicating completed action instead of just an aorist tense, which would make just simple past action, or a plural as opposed to a singular, and this shows us that it's not just the ideas that are in the text that are inspired by God. But it is the specific words themselves, because you can change in a statement, you can change from one synonym to another synonym, and two different words that are synonyms often also include some disparate meanings uh, among the two synonyms. No two synonyms are perfectly, totally interchangeable. Each has uh, a range of meaning that the other does not have. It may not be large, but it has some, and so you you have to ask the question as a as an interpreter of scripture, why did why this word and not that word? Now sometimes it really doesn't uh, make a difference, or we haven't been able to discern a difference. Uh, for example, uh, Dan Wallace, uh, and I don't always agree with Dan on on many things, but Dan as a uh, you got to hand it to him, he's a tremendous grammarian. He's written an intermediate and advanced uh, grammar uh, for uh, 
uh, Greek, which uh, is good for the most part, but there are very questionable areas within it, I believe. But one of the things that about Dan is that he wrote his master's thesis. I never can remember which is which, but he wrote uh, his master's thesis on the use of the article in the Greek, and he wrote his his doctoral dissertation on the absence of the article in the Greek. Because and and one of the things he was dealing with was that in in Matthew, for example, you'll have uh, when he when he says Joseph and Mary, he puts the article with Joseph with the name Joseph and the article with the name Mary. So he says, the Joseph and the Mary. That's how you would literally translate it in the Greek. But the other writers, or even Matthew in the, in the same passage, would drop the article. Is there a significance to that? And after years of study, um, Dan concluded that there's no discernible distinction between the inclusion or exclusion of the article in, in those passages. And uh, I would have to uh, agree with him, and others have. At least there may have been some minor nuance to that in the original Greek, but but it's lost on us. So we haven't. Uh, maybe we just haven't discerned why that would be a difference. So there are in places stylistic differences, but I think one of the problems I have today is that too often people jump to a a difference as being stylistic without fully exploring the question of whether or not there might be uh, some significance in variation between synonyms or grammar or something like that. So verbal refers to the principle that inspiration extends to each and every word. so we have to determine why one word as opposed to another word. What's the significance of this specific word? The word plenary has to do with that which is full. So it means that that the, the fullness or totality of the Scripture is equally inspired. So that when you read in Genesis 5 the genealogy or Genesis 10 or 11, you read the genealogy or the genealogy in Matthew, that is as equally inspired and accurate as as uh, the upper room discourse or the Sermon on the Mount or any other passage in Scripture or the Torah that was uh, virtually dictated by God or written by the finger of God. So that every passage is equally inspired. This is a problem with the red letter editions that uh, are popular in many Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red. What that is implying is that those words in red are somehow more significant than the words in black. But if the entirety of the Bible, the 66 uh, books of the Scripture, are the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, then Every single word in the Bible is the word of Christ. Every word should be in red, not just uh, things that appear to be uh, specific uh, quotations. A couple other uh, words that are used in talking about the nature of the Bible are the words infallible and inerrant, infallible and inerrant. Infallible has the uh, idea that Every word is equally authoritative and equally correct. Every word is equally authoritative and equally correct. And uh, in fact, in the history of understanding this doctrine, 
uh, early on in the church, early on in, in, in uh, American history, early on in uh, uh, the uh, 1700s or, or 1600s, Protestant Reformation, if you said you, that you believe the Bible is the Word of God, that meant that you believed in what today is referred to as verbal, plenary, infallible, uh, inerrant Word of God. Uh, as uh, man has become more sophisticated in his thinking, he finds ways to get around these definitions so that uh, uh, he can say, yes, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. What they mean is the Bible contains the Word of God, so not every word is the Word of God. And uh, another way that people get around uh, an, uh, an orthodox view of inerrancy and inspiration is to say that they believe that the Bible is inspired in all matters of faith and practice. Well, that's good. That's a great statement. It's not what it says that's wrong. It's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the Bible is inerrant or infallible when it speaks of historical events or uh, events related to creation or events related to uh, government, but only in matters of faith and practice uh, is the Bible inerrant. So uh, theologians have come up with very sophisticated uh, ways of sliding around uh, these doctrines because they're, they're uncomfortable with the complete authority of Scripture. A word that has been added in um, recent years has been inerrancy, that it is without error. That, now, this only applies to the original autographs, the original writings. Now, we don't have those, but it's a lot easier to reconstruct an an original that is without error than it is to reconstruct an original that was filled with errors because then you never really know what is erroneous and what is not. So inerrancy means that no error existed in the original autographs or the original writings of Scripture. And uh, some today have decided that we need to insert the word unlimited inerrancy uh, but it seems to me that's redundant. Unfortunately, we have those today that have come up with this doctrine of limited inerrancy. And that's just another way of saying that you believe the Bible is inerrant in all matters of faith and practice. It's a limited inerrancy. It's not um, uh, that you believe in the verbal plenary inspiration uh, of Scripture. So this is what we believe. This is uh, these statements that I've been reading come right out of the doctrinal statement uh, of this church and this congregation. So um, let's t- talk a little bit about the mechanics of inspiration, the mechanics of inspiration and how this took place. I've mentioned this already, so I'll just hit the high points here. We believe that, as 2 Timothy 3.16 states, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God is the ultimate source of Scripture, and God is very much involved in that whole process of communicating the Word, moving from His mind through the mind of, of, of a human uh, writer of Scripture down to the page so that God could guarantee that the final product was exactly uh, what He wanted and was free from error. Uh, one of the um, key elements that we learn from this, uh, as I pointed out a minute ago, is when Second Timothy 3, uh, 17 says that the, a man of God may be adequate or uh, and equipped for every good work, that this relates to what we call the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. That is that the Bible gives us everything we need 
to solve all the problems in life and to understand who God is and who man is. It may not tell us everything we want to know. There may be questions that we uh, can't answer, but that will give us something to learn when we're in heaven. So sufficient is a word that means as much as needed, something that is ample, something that is satisfactory, something that is uh, gives us everything we need to accomplish a specific task. So when this verse states that all Scripture is inspired by God, it is not saying, as some translations have put it, that all Scripture inspired by God, which would imply that maybe some Scripture isn't inspired by God. Some have attempted to do that, but that doesn't um, that doesn't really work grammatically. What we see in the Scripture, though, is the writers of Scripture do give us specific clues and ideas of how uh, inerrancy worked and their understanding of inerrancy and what books were authoritative and what books uh, are not. For example, in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul introduces uh, two Scripture quotations by saying, "...for the Scripture says." By using that phrase, he's going to link an Old Testament Torah scripture with a gospel scripture, and he's going to connect them together as being equally authoritative. So he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And he, then he ties it to a passage in the Gospels, the laborer is worthy of his wages, and that's in Luke ten seven. Now, this is an important verse for a couple of reasons. One is that it tells us that the Gospel of Luke was written by the time Paul wrote 1 Timothy. So if he wrote 1 Timothy during his first Roman imprisonment, which is what most people, most scholars believe, sometime around 60... Uh, 62 or 63 uh, A.D., then the Gospel of Luke was written by that point. Now, this is an important uh, fact because when you read certain uh, higher critical uh, writers or you read books that are based on higher criticism, this is what you, the conclusions you'll see if you watch the Discovery Channel or History Channel or some of these other specials. They will say, well, the writers of Scripture wrote somewhere between 60 and 100 years after the events of Jesus' life. Well, that statement is really saying, number one, the people we think wrote it didn't write it because they would have been dead, especially if it was 100 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And they are uh, also challenging that the accuracy of what is written uh, by those uh, by those writers. And they base it on on pretty much conjecture on their part related to a number of different uh, uh, different factors that are pure speculation. They're not based on any hard evidence for, for uh, the contention of the writers in the early church going back to the early uh, second century is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the writers of the four Gospels and that they were all written before uh, the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. Uh, but there's, there's contention. And, and if, if people choose to, to date the Gospels to the late, sev- uh, late 60s or into the 70s or 80s of the first century, even that has implications for how they're going to interpret Scripture. Uh, for one thing, in Luke 21, 
And in Matthew 24, when Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, if those writers, I mean, this is the underlying contention, is that Matthew and Luke were really written after the destruction of the temple. So that's not prophecy, predictive prophecy. That's just, uh, they're just writing that as history, and they're putting those words into Jesus' mouth to make it look like he could predict prophecy. So it's an, all of these are just subtle attacks on the authority uh, of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture. But, but, um, uh, Paul writes to Timothy towards the, um, uh, during his first imprisonment, and if he's connecting Deuteronomy and Luke together as Scripture, then even by 62 or 63 A.D., the Christian community is coming to to understand that at least we have one gospel. Luke probably had three gospels by that point. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were probably all completed by that point, and they're viewed as having equal authority to the Hebrew Scriptures uh, to the Old Testament. Peter, who also writes before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, wrote about Paul's writings. So this is also an indication that that Paul had written much of his uh, body of, of work, much of his epistles, most of his epistles, by the time Peter writes this. In 2 Peter 3.16, in talking about Paul, he says, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Here you have uh, Peter saying, Paul writes things that are hard to understand. And any of us who've tried to work through some passages in Ephesians or Romans, uh, would uh, agree with uh, Peter that there are things there that are very difficult uh, to understand. So uh, this is a, a part, part of our uh, understanding that, that Paul wrote this. And when Peter writes this, he says, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Well, the implication there is that Paul's writings are part of the Scriptures, and so he is treating the Pauline writings as scripture by the mid, uh, mid sixties because he clearly writes before he is executed in Rome, which was before the destruction of the temple when Nero was, uh, uh, was still emperor. So he's executed sometime around 65 or 66 probably. And by then he's already written this. So by that time, Paul's writings are already being collected and viewed uh, as as scripture. Now we we know that um, uh, when we look at the uh, at the scriptures at Second Timothy three uh, sixteen and seventeen that it states that the man of, that the purpose for the inspiration of scripture is that the man of God may be adequate or equipped for every good work. And that word uh, translated adequate. Uh, is the Greek word artios, which means uh, that we may be qualified or proficient or competent uh, in accomplishing a task. And and the idea equipping has to do with, uh, uh, it's a word exartizo. It's related to another uh, form of that word that's used to refer to the uh, pastoral ministry, that the role of the apostles, prophets, Past, uh, evangelist, pastor, and teachers is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Uh, it's the same root in both cases with different um, uh, different prefixes. 
And so we are equipped or trained for every good work, and it's on the basis of the Word of God. So this is why we believe that the role of the pastor is to teach, to exegete uh, the Word of God. So it is only through the Word of God that we are equipped uh, for every good work. So the first point I looked at was just a basic definition. The third point had to do with the uh, additional words used, verbal plenary inspiration. The fourth point had to do with the or the third point, rather, had to do with the mechanics of inspiration. And now the fourth point, uh, it just has to do with understanding uh, inspiration and inerrancy based on a syllogism, based on using the Scripture as our foundation of logic, where we're putting together a couple of different premises from the Scripture. So that our first premise is that God is absolute veracity. God is absolute truth. There's there's no lying within God. And so Paul states in Romans 3, 4, may it never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, quote, that thou mightst be justified in thy words and might prevail when thou art judged, that God is not a liar. So our first point is if God is absolute truth and God cannot lie, then and we put that together with our second principle, that God is the source of the Scriptures from uh, uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, then we can only conclude that the Scriptures, therefore, must be absolute truth. If God is the source of Scripture and God cannot lie, then that which he produces cannot be a lie. And this is why Jesus refers to God's Word as absolute truth truth in John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Now, a rule of logic is that if your premises are correct and the conclusion is stated accurately from the premises, then the conclusion must be correct. Since both of our premises are true, God is absolute truth and God is a source of Scripture, then the conclusion must be true that the Scriptures are without error and are absolutely true. Now, fifth point, uh, just to address the issue of human involvement, this is a similar issue to the incarnation of the living word. Jesus is called the logos, the word, in John 1, 1 through 4. So we have the living word who enters into human history through a human means and is preserved free from sin. If God is able to do that, then God is able to take his written word, his spoken word, and uh, preserve it through a a human uh, mediator, a human means, and preserve it from error. Uh, So that um, the, the writers of Scripture, as moved by the Holy Spirit, are are prevented from writing error. It doesn't mean that they're sinless. It just means that in the, what they wrote at that time under the inspiration of Scripture is without uh, error. This word that is translated uh, uh, moved, that uh, men were moved by the Holy Spirit of God, it's a word that means to is used of the uh, movement of a sailing vessel across the water. Uh, it's used that way in Acts 27, uh, 15, and 17 to refer to a ship that is blown by the wind, and the wind controls the action of the ship, and the ship can only go where the wind um, blows it. 
So from 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, we see that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate agent of revelation, uh, and the content basically originates from him. The content does not originate with the human authors of Scripture and that uh, God prevents their sin nature from uh, diverting, misdirecting, confusing, or erroneously recording his message. Fifth point is to look at some things that Jesus said about Scripture. And uh, one of the things that he says is that uh, inspiration, the authority, the infallibility of Scripture extends down to the to every detail of Scripture. Matthew five seventeen and 18, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, when he uses the phrase law or the prophets, this is one of the ways that the uh, Jews talked about the uh, the Old Testament. Sometimes the entire Old Testament, the 39 books that we refer to, uh, were referred to as the Torah. Uh, sometimes the Torah just refers to the first five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Sometimes Torah would refer, as it does even today, to the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. But they also sometimes refer to the uh, Hebrew Scriptures as the Tanakh, which is an acronym for uh, based on T, N, and K. The T for Torah, the first five books of Moses, uh, the N for Nevi'im, referring to um, the prophets, and that would include the former prophets of Joshua and Judges, Samuel and Kings, and the later prophets of uh, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Now, Daniel's not considered a prophet because he didn't have the role or position of prophet within the kingdom, uh, even though he had the gift of prophecy. And so Daniel was included in that third group, the K, the Ketuvim, which are the writings and that would include uh, the Chronicles, uh, Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, uh, Esther, uh, Proverbs, Psalms, uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and uh, and Daniel. Uh, so you have when Jesus calls it the Law and the Prophets, he's talking about the the scriptures that they had, what we refer to as the Old Testament. And he says uh, he did not come to abolish the Law of the Prophets, but to fulfill. And then he explains it further in verse 18 by saying, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. We know this occurs at the end of the future uh, millennial kingdom when the new heavens and new earth come. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the, and then the new King James, I believe, or maybe the, maybe what I'm reading from is the uh, new American standard, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And actually what this says is not the, uh, not a jot or a tittle. That's the old King James, uh, translation. A jot or a tittle, uh, shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now that's a very important statement because what Jesus is saying is that inspiration extends down to, uh, parts of a letter or a word, uh, parts of a word. And this shows us that every detail in the text matters. A, uh, 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 the smallest letter is a translated or transliterated into uh, English. Old English was a jot, and this refers to the letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the yod, which is pronounced like our Y. And then a tittle is actually a part of a letter. 
For example, I put together this slide, a part of a letter. The difference between the word hit and the word bit is just that closing off the bottom of the H. That is just a part of a letter. That is a tittle. Or the difference between the word cat and the word oat. Now, if you said eat your cat meal for breakfast... That would mean something totally different from eat your oatmeal for breakfast. And so that one little part of a letter can make a huge difference in what is stated. Or you can look at the next line. We have the letter, capital letter F. The only difference between an F and a capital P is just a minor part of that uh, letter closing off that upper, upper those two vertical uh, horizontal lines and changes the word from fun to pun. If you had a leg on the P, pun is changed to run. If you close off the bottom of the R, then that changes to bun. That's the importance of a tittle. So a tittle makes a difference between one word and another word. Uh, in Hebrew, this shows up as a difference between a bait and a cat, cough and a dalit and a resh. Also, here I have the Hebrew letter hate and here the Hebrew letter hate. Hate, uh, hate rather. And so um, uh, you just have the uh, this little difference, this little closure right here between the leg and the top indicates the difference between the hay, rather. I mispronounced that a minute ago, the hate and the hay. And this is just the difference between those two letters. One's a soft H, one's a hard H. And uh, a yod is this small letter, uh, just about the size of our apostrophe, uh, which is a which is a consonant, sometimes a vowel, in in uh, in Hebrew. So this makes a a significant distinction. Let me give you a couple of examples of how this makes a makes a distinction. In English, we have a verse uh, that we go to to support the doctrine of the Trinity, that Jesus said, "I and the Father are one." I and the Father. Are one, and the word "one" is written here in the neuter singular, not in the masculine singular. Thus, he is talking about the fact that they are one thing. If he had put it in the masculine singular, it would be one man, one person. Uh, so he's distinguishing the fact that they are separate as persons, but one in essence. So this is an assertion that Jesus and the Father had the identical essence, and that's based upon the grammar, that this is a neuter, whereas uh, one as an adjective could uh, uh, can be feminine, masculine, or neuter, depending on what it is modifying. So by putting it in a as a neuter, it's emphasizing that uh, Jesus and the Father are one in essence. A, another uh, example also from the Gospel of John is John 8:58, and Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He said, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He didn't say I was, but I am. And his use of the Greek here, ego eimi, uh, was a reflection upon the name of God given to Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, this is what we refer to as a sacred tetragrammaton. Uh, Jews do not pronounce this name. According to their tradition, it was only pronounced once a year by the high priest when he entered into the 
uh, Holy of Holies. And usually they will read this when they, it's in the text. They will read the proper name of God, uh, Yahweh. They will read it as Adonai or as Hashem, which means the name. That's a more modern uh, development. Historically, they would refer to it as Adonai. So instead of reading uh, uh, the Lord God or Yahweh Elohim, they would read it as uh, Hashem Elohim or Adonai Elohim. And so the word Yahweh, though, is based on the Greek, or excuse me, the Hebrew verb Hayah, which is the word for existence, for being. It is equivalent to our word is or to be. And it indicates ongoing existence when it's in the present tense. And so uh, God explained his name to Moses as meaning I am that I am, or I am the self-existent one. So when Jesus says, uh, before Abraham was, I am, instead of using the past tense, he used the present tense, uh, the Pharisees properly understood him to making a claim to deity, and they responded by bending over to pick up rocks to stone him for blasphemy. Now, what we see in these examples, of course, is an affirmation of what we're talking about in terms of inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, that inspiration extends down to the very letters and extends down to the very parts of speech that we have uh, in the Scripture. So the very words and the very letters are important. Each detail of the text is important and equally authoritative. Now, there are several uh, uh, conclusions or several corollaries that we should make to the doctrine of inspiration and uh, infallibility. The first corollary number one is this. Though every word is equally infallible and authoritative, not every word is equally applicable to every believer. There are clearly statements in the Mosaic Law that have no applicability to present-day believers, other than maybe in a, in a very general sense of get, providing us a framework for understanding Scripture. But when you look at some of the laws in the Torah, they do not directly apply to us uh, at all. But it is equally infallible and authoritative, but it was a, in a letter as it were, in a document that is uh, that is connected to a specific people at a specific time in history. So we don't go back there and try to make it apply to us in the church today because that's like reading your next-door neighbor's mail and thinking that uh, the uh, nasty grams that he's getting from a collection agency actually go to you. Uh, we would not make that that mistake. So though every word is equally infallible and authoritative, not every word is equally applicable to every believer. Some are applicable to Old Testament saints. Some are applicable to church-age believers. Second corollary, if every word is breathed out by God, then it is the responsibility of the pastor-teacher to investigate and exegete every word, the entire counsel of God, uh, from Genesis to Revelation. Every book in the Scripture should be taught 
uh, to the believer because they are all profitable. That's what, when, when Paul addressed Timothy there in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is inspired by God, verse 15 indicated that, that the Scripture he had in mind when he wrote that was primarily the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, if the Old Testament is uh, inspired by God, breathed out by God, and is adequate and complete and sufficient for our for our equipping as believers, then certainly the New Testament is. So every word of, is breathed out by God, so we need to teach the entire counsel of Scripture uh, so that we can learn to think biblically. A third corollary is that if every word is breathed out by God, then the Bible is absolutely and totally sufficient for salvation, for spiritual growth, and problem solving. That means that when people have methodology, for example, in church growth, let's go see what we can learn from general revelation, i.e. sociology, which, by the way, is a a completely uh, bad argument. But that's what they present is that sociology is general revelation, and so we can combine the book of general revelation with the book of special revelation and so that justifies the minds of some being able to use sociology as the standard for church growth. But that denies the sufficiency of Scripture. God, uh, you know, sociology didn't develop till the mid-19th century. So what happened for 1,800 years? We just didn't have a clue how to build a church? No, it has nothing to do with building a church. Same thing with psychology. Psychology may be helpful in some areas of life, and there's some areas of psychology that are that that may be helpful in some areas of business or whatever. But but in the area of uh, uh, of just sitting down and having a conversation, in terms of uh, uh, so modern psychology as the means of solving problems. Uh, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says you can solve everything from the Word of God, be, uh, be, and that's why God gave it to us. Uh, this is reinforced in passages like Second Peter one three and four that uh, His divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He didn't leave anything out. Uh, it's how how do we get this? How do we acquire it through the true knowledge of Him who called us? So it's based on knowledge of Him, and the only way to know Him is through His Word. For by these he granted to us the precious and magnificent promises. And so it is through his promises that we come to know God and we come to see his power acting in our life. And then this leads to the fourth and final corollary, which is if every word is from God to us, nothing should be more important in our life than learning and applying his word. Uh, just think about the, a 16-year-old boy getting a uh, email, love note, love, a text from his, from some girl. Uh, he's going to spend all of his time thinking about that and trying to figure out exactly what she means. Nothing becomes more important to him than understanding what she communicates to him. That doesn't even touch the level of importance that we should put on God's Word because God has given us uh, the owner's manual. He has given us his instruction to us, and nothing is more important than complete mastery of the Bible. If we think that somehow we, we can get by without completely mastering uh, the text of Scripture, then then what we're saying by implication is, well, maybe it's not so important. Maybe it's not really the Word of God. But if you really believe it's the Word of God, then nothing else is more important and nothing else matters. 
Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study uh, your word, to come to a greater understanding of your uh, work in giving us your word of the process of inspiration and the process of preservation of Scripture so that we can be confident that what we have is your word. Though it's in translation and though it has come down through the centuries, we still have your word and we can know uh, the original through the uh, Hebrew uh, manuscripts, Greek manuscripts that have been preserved down through the centuries. And we pray that you challenge us with the importance of knowing your word, knowing all of your word, and, and how crucial that is for our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.